Well, good morning, Shore Church. Good to see you. If you don't know me, my name is Josh. I've been away for most of the summer on a missions trip uh, in East Africa, into Tanzania. Um, had a really good time, but I've been away for a while. So there's some new faces I don't know. If that's you, look forward to hopefully getting to know you in uh, the coming weeks and months in this, in this coming ministry season. It's good to be back. Um, my wife, Rebecca, and I look forward to connecting with many of you um, the, coming, the coming weeks. Now, I've been following along and listening to the sermon series that you've been going through. I'm finally alive and loving it, loving it. And that's available for you as well, by the way. You can go online and track all of our content. We have six years of content preached through a number of the books of the Bible. So if you need something for your cycle into work or whatever it is, I encourage you to do that. This, this topic of the spiritual disciplines uh, it's been a sweet one to me. Um, I'm, I'm encouraged that we're going through it as a body. It's been uh, just like fuel on the fire of my own heart. I've spent maybe the last couple years going through uh, and studying this a little bit more intensely on my own. And so couldn't be more excited that as a body, we're working through this. My prayer from a distance has been that it would ignite in all of our hearts like it has for me that this would um, become an interest, that this would um, really put some traction on our faith for many of us. However, when I first began to study the spiritual disciplines uh, and understand them as just that, kind of an, an, an intentional, engaging um, discipline, it, it, it smelt a little bit like works to me. I had a bit of a natural resistance to it at first because we know salvation isn't something that we, we earn or, or maintain. We, we just read it uh, in Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, not a result of works, so no man may boast. Not a result of works, not a result, of, we just sang it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I, I had a bit of a proclivity to, to ignore this at first. Uh, because one of the chief distortions that the enemy loves to come in with is this idea that we need to do something. You need to do this. And it, it usually manifests in one of two camps. One is either um, religious elitism, kind of this, this, this pride that comes up. Like, I've got it all together. I'm keeping it together. We start to look down our nose at other people. Or on the other side of the spectrum, religious condemnation. Suddenly we failed at something and we're crushed. We feel like we've, we've failed, God doesn't love us anymore. And so we try to do something to, to please him again. This is, this is not what the disciplines are though. This is not what the disciplines are. And once I began to see, um, this is our partnering with the Holy Spirit in the outworking of Christ's character in us, it started to make a little bit more sense. And while our right standing before God isn't earned or maintained by us. That doesn't mean that the outworking of Christ's character in us doesn't involve us. I heard a quote from the late Dallas Willard that was really impacting to me. He said, God's not opposed to effort, just earning. God's not opposed to effort, just earning. And as soon as I started to put this all together, the disciplines, they ignited in my heart. I began to understand them as a partnering together with what the Holy Spirit's already doing in us. And, and the habits of grace, the rhythms of grace, the spiritual disciplines, they became ways of actively and effectively engaging in my sanctification, in my um, conforming into the image of Christ. And so I mean it when I say, I have been praying for you, and I have been enjoying the series, and I'm really, really looking forward to the next three weeks together. Um, let me pray, and then we will get going. Jesus, I thank you uh, just for bringing me safely home. Thank you for this body that we get to be a part of. Thank you for this beautiful part of the world that you predestined, Acts 17 says, that you placed us with intention and with a purpose. You've made us a part of this community with a design and a plan. I park hard this morning just on the promise that you're going to conform us to the image of Christ. And I hold up what I've prepared and ask, Holy Spirit, would you breathe life into this, ignite it into fire in all of our hearts so that we would be more conformed to the image of Christ. We long for this. 
We long to, to see you face to face, and, but we believe as well, eternal life begins now, as John says, that there's a divine nature for us to partake in now. And so I pray as we open the word that you would minister to us and Holy Spirit, you'd make it come alive. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> now, for many of us, when, when we first came to Christ, became Christians, the Holy Spirit came in, exchanged our heart of stone, gave us a heart of flesh, we experienced a, a large-scale change in our life, a, kind of an in, almost instantaneous big transformation. Our desires changed, um, who we maybe hung out with changed, what we did changed, what we listened to, what we read, all of that Changed. It was it was noticeable in us, but it was probably quite perceivable to this to those around us as well. But if you're like me, as you've continued on in this Christian walk, things have come up. Maybe you didn't see them at first. Things have begun to unearth in our hearts that maybe discourage us. Some of this you look at and you go, "Where is this coming from?" and and, and you've prayed about it. You've tried to stop it. Maybe you show up here and you, you hear a sermon like husbands love your wives and you go home and feel like you fail at it. And, and you try to change and you cry out to God going, God, just change me. Come and give me that new heart like you did before. Take away this desire. Take whatever causes me to act this way away. Take away the cravings. Just change me, God. And, and we keep coming back to that place, and we don't know how to change. We don't know how to get rid of these feelings that we have. We don't know how to change these desires, and we want it to just happen in an instant. And for many, I suspect that's left you feeling a little distraught, a little discouraged, maybe weary or wondering, am I even saved? Am I even saved? And I want to be clear, <clears throat> God does intervene. He loves to just show up and change things in an instant. He does this all the time. In fact, we wouldn't be believers if God didn't do this. If he didn't show up and give us a new heart, we would have never even chose him. And so God began a work in you before you ever did anything. God loves to show up and change us in an instant. And so we, he does, and so we, we can and should cry out in prayer for these things. God loves it when we cry out to him in desperation and hunger. But <clears throat> much of the change that takes place in our, our Christian lives, it won't happen unintentionally on our part. It's going to happen rather quite intentionally. Augustine, um, he once wrote, he said, without God, we can't. Without God, we can't. But without us, he will not. Without God, we can't. But without us, he will not. This is what Augustine said. The formation of the character of Christ in our hearts is a journey that God the Holy Spirit invites us to partner on with him. Just as God um, showed up in the garden, planted a garden for Adam, invited him to cultivate it and expand it across the whole earth. God, the Holy Spirit, has initiated a garden in our hearts. He's planted a garden in our hearts that he invites us to partner with him in cultivating and expanding till it takes over our whole heart and character. <clears throat> this is what the spiritual disciplines are. As I've studied the spiritual disciplines, there's two essential camps or categories that they fall into. They're up on the screen behind me. This has been helpful for me to see, so I want to pass it on to you. Um, two essential camps. Um, one, or category, is the disciplines of engagement, of putting on, doing something. So we've talked through some of these. Study, worship last week. Jordan just preached a banger of a sermon. Love that brother. Love his worship. Um, God's clearly at work in him, but... We talked about how worship and celebration is a discipline. The, the, the discipline of, of fellowship, of prayer. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. These are disciplines of engagement or things that we put on. And then there's disciplines of um, abstinence or, or putting off of things. So sacrifice. Disciplines of secrecy. Silence and solitude. Fasting and frugality, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. 
Now, these two categories of disciplines of engagement and abstinence, they work almost in tandem with the sins of omission and commission, where we're prone to not do as God has commanded us. A discipline of engagement can help us practition, where we're prone to sins of commission, disciplines of abstinence can help us practition and, and, and direct our hearts back to God. But these categories exist. This morning we're talking about that of putting off and really the, kind of the poster boy of the disciplines of abstinence, that of fasting and frugality. <clears throat> now, all throughout the Old Testament, if you are a student of the scriptures, we see, we see fasting everywhere. I mean, um, those who fast kind of compose a who's who of the Old Testament. You see Moses fasting right before he goes up to meet God and, and get the commandments. You see David fasting all through the Psalms. You see him fasting when his child dies. We see the prophets fasting. We see um, Nineveh. Jonah goes in and preaches to them in this radically pagan nation. They all put on sackcloth and ashes and they fast. And it's all over the New Testament as well. We see Jesus fasting. We see his disciples fasting. We see the Pharisees fasting. We see Jesus instructing his disciples to fast. We see Jesus really just assuming that fasting's going on. He says things like, when you fast, assuming that people already are. Fasting, it's actually talked about more than baptism in the New Testament. That doesn't mean it's more important, but it's talked about more than that. And it's also throughout church history, um, ancient Discipleship manuals like the Didache, they talk about baptism. If you take a look at church history, um, the early church practiced baptism on Wednesdays and Fridays. Every week, early Christians were baptized, uh, or pardon me, were fasting. It was, um, it was synonymous with what, with what it meant to be a Christian. They were commemorating um, Christ's betrayal by Judas and Christ's crucifixion on the cross on Friday. And the Eastern Orthodox Church still continues this through to this day. They fast from things every Wednesday and Friday, like, like fish and meat and bread and oil and even wine. Some of you, wine. Yeah, they fasted every Wednesday and Friday. But fasting's practiced by a religious crowd of a different sort still today and still in this city. We are arguably the most fit city in the stratosphere. If you walk around Vancouver, every 10 steps you're coming across a kick block boxing or a cardio or a city gym or some other sort of gym or a spin class or hot yoga or cold yoga or regular yoga or Pilates or Zumba or whatever it is, fitness, nutrition, juice bars, this crowd knows about fasting. <clears throat> this crowd practices fasting. There's all sorts of fasts. There's water fasts. There's jutes fasts. There's gluten fasts. There's, I don't even know, there's intermittent fasting where you stop eating at dinner and you don't eat till lunch the next day in order to kickstart your muscle building. Um, there's the 5-2 fast where you eat five days a week and two days a week you don't eat, which is ironically quite similar to the East, what, how the early church practiced fasting. This is all over and it's getting practiced because of its health benefits, because of how it detoxifies the body and kickstarts muscle growth. But if fasting is understood and if it's practiced properly, it doesn't just have a physical benefit. Its effects can't just be measured on a scale or by a body mass index. It has a spiritual effect as well. And just as it's detoxifying for the physical flesh and helps to grow muscle in the physical flesh, it does the same thing spiritually. And so I want to help us understand what fasting is. Four things it's not in addition to being about our physical health. It's not a way to make God accept us. Jesus actually rebuked the Pharisees for this. They thought, hey, if I fast, God's going to love me. And, and you can fast and fall into this. This is not what fasting is, though. It's not, also not a way to force God's hand to action. Like, we're, we get on a hunger strike, and we just sit there, and I'm not eating until you do this. Not what it is. It's also not a way to force God's ear to hear. And, 
and if I'm honest, this is probably where I'm most prone to falling into a false form of fasting. I'll, I fast regularly in really as a posturing of my heart to say, God, I'm desperate for you. I need to hear from you. Before I preach, I, I fast because we're all hungry for, for, for the food that only God can give. And so I try to posture my heart, but I can fall into this temptation of going, God, I'm doing my part now. What, come on and do yours. But that, that's wrong. This isn't what fasting is. Fourth thing is fasting is not a punishment for wrongdoing. It's not a way of inflicting penance on ourselves. Fasting, in, in other words, it's not a way of changing God's receptivity towards us, but our receptivity towards God. Let me say that again. Fasting is not a way of changing God's receptivity to us, but our receptivity to God. So now, four things true fasting is. Number one, it's up on your screen. It's a proper posturing of our hearts. A physical declaration that we need God to survive. It can be a demonstration of our grief or honest repentance, but it's a pulling away from one thing in order to press into prayer and reading and meditation. The psalmist in Psalm 46 um, says, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. It's the outward expression of this. And, and the disciplines, they go hand in hand. When we engage in a discipline of abstinence, it partners together with a, a discipline of engagement, of prayer, meditation, study. Second thing true fasting is, is it's a, a declaration of need. Physical, outward sign declaring that we need God to survive. A deep soul-level yearning to sense the spiritual reality more than the physical one. Jesus said in Matthew 4, and we're going to go there in a couple minutes, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Third thing it is, it's, it's a proper positioning of our hearts. You won't fill a cup of water if you don't put it under the tap. To quote David Mathis, I think this is up on the screen, he says, we can't earn God's grace or make it flow apart from his free gift. But we can position ourselves to go on getting as he keeps on giving. Fasting is a proper positioning of our hearts. One author said, fasting is an action that renews contact with God, like removing the rust and corrosion from a car battery to enable the current to flow more freely. Fasting is that positioning, it's that renewed contact. John Piper, um, he said, the spiritual disciplines are the means God's given us for drinking at the fountain of life. They don't earn the enjoyment, they receive it. They're not payment for pleasures, they're pipelines for pleasures. So rightly understood, this is the fourth point, physical fasting is spiritual feasting. It's a way of pulling our souls away from all the things it demands to engage in and, and directing it towards the thing that can satisfy. It's lifting it up from the crumbs on the floor and putting it down at the dinner that's been served at the table. Starving the flesh in order to feed the spirit. Now, many of us, we've probably only ever thought of fasting as a pipeline of pain. Like, that's a great way to suffer, probably not going to do it. If we have engaged in it, it's probably just in order to maybe get big or to get rid of some toxins in our body. But rightly understood, it's a pipeline of pleasure, as Piper says. It's a way of partaking of the divine nature that Second Peter 1 says is on hand for us to drink of. So... Now that just briefly we've unpacked what fasting isn't and is, I want to read a section of scripture so that we can see how Jesus fasted. I want us to take a look and see how and why Jesus fasted. Why Jesus would fast. My goal in all of this this morning is that we leave here 
um, better able to practice this, better able to practition in our own lives, partner with what the Holy Spirit's already up to through this spiritual discipline. So one of the things we do here every week is we open our Bibles to Shore Church. Go ahead, grab your Bibles. We're going to be reading in Matthew 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can just simply Google Matthew 4. Matthew 4, something will come up, and, um, and you can follow along with us there. I'll give you one sec to flip there. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to be loaves of bread. But he answered him, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, a few things I want us to notice here right off the bat in, in, in Matthew 4. Um, the Spirit led Jesus towards temptation. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, knowing what was coming. Second thing I want us to see is because Jesus fasted, we know fasting isn't only done in response to sin. Jesus is sinless. He never sinned. So he's not fasting as a treatment to sin. He's fasting before his temptation because it's a, he's fasting in preparation for sin. Third, another thing I want us to notice here is it's not the hunger that presented the temptation, but rather prepared him for it. It didn't weaken him in his time of temptation. It strengthened him. Some of us might look and go, man, how could Jesus resist temptation? He's 40 days, no food. How could he resist this offer of Satan? The temptation wasn't the hunger. The preparation was the hunger. Jesus wasn't hungry. Jesus was full. The thing that strengthened Jesus to be able to resist the temptation to eat was not eating. Think about that. Let me say it again. The thing that strengthened Jesus to be able to resist the temptation to eat what the devil was going to offer him was not eating. Satan was going to come and he's going to tempt him with three key temptations. Three temptations that he faced, that you and I face. And his preparation for it was not eating. We could think of it this way. Jesus was preloading with spiritual muscle fuel before hitting the physical temptation gym. I want to I walk with you through these three temptations. The first one we see, Matthew 4, verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Here's what he's saying. Free yourself from this hunger. Take these stones, turn them into bread, fill yourself up. Satisfy yourself. Why stay hungry when you can be filled? Surely God doesn't want you to feel this way. Satan's first temptation here is that towards self-gratification. Self-gratification. He's trying to get Jesus to, tempted to, towards satisfying his own cravings. He's saying, if you can do it, why wouldn't you? If it's within your power you got the resources for this, why wouldn't you do it? God doesn't want you to be hungry. That's the same lie he said to Adam and Eve in the garden. As a culture, we've bought into this hook, line, sinker. Indulgence, it's our native language. The message today is if you feel it, if you want it, if you like it, if you can do it, must be right. You shouldn't deprive yourself of what you want. Why would you do that? But this verse, verse shows us something important. This is a ploy of the enemy. 
This is a tactic and a temptation of the enemy. The surface level in the moment, it might look like indulging is going to lead to more pleasure, but it won't. Notice this. Notice this. Hear this. Rocks aren't bread. Rocks are not bread. They just aren't. Many of us, we're indulging in everything we want, whenever we want, wherever we want it. We bought wholesale into this temptation to indulge ourselves. We're living lives enslaved to our appetites. We've dedicated our lives to filling our bellies, but the things that we're filling our bellies with aren't bread, they're stones. Philippians 3.19. I'm going to quote it out of the New Living Translation because I like how it says it. It says, those who live this way are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they only think about this life here on earth. They only think about the physicality, not the spiritual, in other words. When God made Adam, remember back in the garden, God took some dirt, formed it together. He got down and yasard, the Greek or the Hebrew word there, formed him. But the thing that made Adam distinct from all the rest of creation is that God also breathed into him. God breathed his nature into him. So Adam and us in turn were both physical and spiritual. We live in the midst of a culture. 60% of Vancouver doesn't believe that in the beginning there was a God. They believe in the beginning they were goo and some sort of cosmic stardust biological space experiment went wrong. I don't know. But they don't believe that there's an immaterial person in them. And so they're being quite consistent in living only for their flesh. We believe that we were made by a God and we're physical, but we're also spiritual. So, yes, we don't live by bread alone, but without bread, we will physically die. So too, spiritually. If we don't feed our spirits, we will spiritually die. Jesus, just like us, he's a physical and a spiritual being. It says he's God, fully God, fully man, What we're seeing here is Jesus pull away from the physicality in order to feast spiritually. Physical fasting, spiritual feasting. James and everyone who's been preaching through this series, they've done a great job at laying this out. So you've heard this a lot already. But if you want to be like Jesus, it only makes sense that we need to do what Jesus did. If we want to be like Jesus, we need to practice the things Jesus practiced. We need the disciplines that Jesus disciplined himself. It only makes sense. We're not going to live like Christ or the life of Christ or fully partake of this divine nature that he's purchased for us if we're not practicing like Christ. We face um, the same temptations towards self-gratification Many of us were really, really aware of where we are. Um, Maybe even those around us, they're aware of where we're prone to physically feasting. The, The discipline of fasting is designed for us to be able to, to treat this in us. But the discipline of fasting will also reveal this. I, um, I, I spent some time, um, fasting in response to some things that I saw in my heart, and I was just going, God, I want to satisfy myself here, not there. But the things that came up in the middle of this fast, um, God lovingly showed me a bunch of other areas. As you fast, things will start to come up in your heart. Your, Your physical nature will crave. Take me here. Give me some of this. And I found, like, multiple days into a fast, the thing I'm craving isn't food. God will use fasting to show us where our desires have become reoriented, where we've been looking to stones to be bread. I want to ask us as a church, and you personally, I encourage you to answer this for yourself. What are the rocks you've been turning to for food? What rocks you turn to for food? Maybe that's clothing, new golf gear, dream vacation spot, alcohol, Starbucks, 
your favorite honey's donuts, home furnishings, a new car, dream of a spouse. I don't know what it is for you. What are the rocks that you're turning to for food? Where are you buying the stones that the devil's selling as food? I got home from vacation, came into our house, and I found that my closet had collapsed. My wife has way too many clothes. Um, she just, no, I'm joking. <laughs> I have way too many clothes. It, my closet broke under the weight. Well, it's probably I put it together too. Um, <laughs> There's multiple problems here. Um, it just showed me where, where am I, what I'm looking to for food, where I'm buying stones. Spiritual discipline of fasting is the intentional placement of our heart before that which can and will satisfy. It combats temptation, but it's also going to reveal it in you. We read on, there's a second temptation that Satan comes at um, Jesus with, that he's going to come at us with too. Um, read from, with me from Matthew 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you. It also says, On their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, what's going on here? It's a little deeper, so just track with me for, for just a minute. Um, Satan is quoting from Psalm 91. That's where Satan's getting these scriptures from. He's quoting them. Psalm 91 says this, No evil shall befall you, no plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan quoting scripture. He says, if you are in fact who you say you are, prove it. Do what the scripture says. God's got to do this for you. If you are who you say you are, just claim it. Hold his promises. Name it. Proclaim it. Jesus' response to Satan was some more scripture. This is from Deuteronomy 6.16. And he says this. He quotes this. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Now, for those of us not up on Deuteronomy, um, Massah actually is a reference back to Exodus where the people of God had been delivered out of Egypt, brought through the Red Sea, the wilderness. God had been doing miraculous thing after miraculous thing, but then they show up before Moses and they start to complain and they say, why'd you bring us out of Egypt to die of thirst out here in the wilderness? So there's a small lull and a little bit of thirst and the people of God begin to reject God. After this history of just momentous things, they turn on God because of the faintest whiff of thirst. Jesus is pointing this out, and he's likening Satan's use of Psalm 91 to the Israelites' complaint against God and Moses. And what's being shown to us in Jesus' response and Satan's twisting of the scripture is our own propensity towards doubting God ain't the, the slightest hint of thirst or hunger. Our tendency toward denying God just the smallest thing. What we're seeing is Satan's tactic to try to get us to doubt God's provision and protection. What we're seeing is Satan's temptation towards getting us to doubt God's presence with us. We're being shown as our tendency towards thinking that we can take care of our thirsts and our hungers ourselves. This temptation towards self-protection and self-preservation Satan's essentially saying, you do live by bread alone. Eat some. Doesn't look like God's going to show up and give you any. There's some right here. Why don't you do it? Self-protect. Take what's right there. Why wouldn't God want you to? You don't need God to show up if you do this. It's this temptation towards self-protection. You haven't brought me a wife yet or a husband yet. Go get my own. This guy wants me. This girl's interested in me. But hey, that's not just outside of marriage. You can do that as a married man. 
well, this woman you gave me isn't really satisfying me. Just Google something. You can be a sexual idolater and looking to sex as bread as a married man and a non-married man. This is why the New Testament calls couples to seasons of prayer and fasting where they're not having sex. New Testament says we shouldn't be apart sexually except for seasons to pray and fast. This is because we're uprooting this idol in our heart. You can have that same exact propensity. Men, unmarried, getting a wife's not going to change your idolatry problem. It's still going to be there. Women, getting, finally having that relationship idol is not going to fix it. It's still going to be there. We stop believing that we don't live on bread alone. That's the core of the problem. And we buy into the lie that we do. So we take matters into our own hands. We self-protect. And we believe it's necessary to do this in order to survive. So just let me ask us, because there's a thousand million ways that this could manifest. I can't go over them all here. Where do you believe the lie that you do live by bread alone? Where are we practically believing the lie that we do live by bread alone? Again, fasting will help us redirect our soul and lift it up from the crumbs on the floor to the feast at the table, but it will also expose this in our hearts. So if you don't know the answer to this question, where are you buying bread that isn't bread, or where are you believing the lie that you do live by bread alone? Fast. It will bring it out. If your experience is anything like mine, it will bring it out. But fasting will help you combat this. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord. Church, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Isaiah 40, 31 says, they that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. Church, wait on the Lord. Look for this lie of the enemy that tells you that you are only material. You are not only material. And we need to feed our spirits. I want to look at a third way here in the text that we see Satan coming at Jesus. Um, So again, Matthew 4, we're going to begin in verse 8. It says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I'll give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, it can be easy to read this and kind of and go, man, well, how, how is Jesus even tempted by this? I mean, he knew all the kingdoms in the world and everything was going to be his. This isn't really that much of a temptation. But hear me, we have these same promises put before us. Where Jesus himself told us the meek will inherit the earth. Romans 8, 17, it says that we're going to be co-heirs with Christ. So we're set to inherit the same thing. Yet we're tempted by it. More likely than not, we're tempted with the same thing that Satan came and tried to tempt Jesus with here, which was a a different road. Jesus knew what was before him, but he also knew the road that it was going to take to get there. The suffering that was going to come on the way. The persecution, the hatred, the not being liked, the discomfort that was going to come before he ever got that. More likely than not, our temptation could be towards doubting this promise of God altogether, but it's not wanting to walk the road that would lead us there. Satan's coming, saying, why would you want to experience a life like that? Have your best life now. There's preachers preaching that. Have your best life now. You know what? I'll take my worst life now for my best life in eternity rather than my, worst, my best life now and my worst life for eternity. If, you, if, if you're asking, you're not, but... But notice how Jesus responds. 
You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And that's really what's at stake here is worship. It's a worship problem. To quote the theologian Russell Moore, he says, Jesus refused to exchange the end-time exaltation by the Father for the right-now exaltation from a snake. That's what's at stake. We're either going to worship God or we turn and we worship ourselves. This is the third temptation, self-glorification. There's a cost to discipleship to Jesus, but there's a cost to non-discipleship as well. If we want to participate in the spiritual nature that is at hand for us, that divine nature that 2 Peter 1 says Christ has purchased for us to put on, there is a cost, but there's a reward as well. There's a satisfaction as well, and we need to see that. Matthew 16, 24, it's up on your screen. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it gain a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This is what's at stake here. So the spiritual discipline of fasting, it reveals the areas we're prone to temptation. It serves as a practical way that we can lift our hearts up and redirect it towards God. And and just as Jesus prepared himself for temptation, it helps us prepare ourselves through temptation. It fills our spiritual appetite so that we're less likely to buy into a physical one. And so if you're prone to the first temptation we talked about, that of self-gratification, fasting directs your heart away from what you're prone to and toward what it really needs. It lifts our heart up again from the crumbs on the floor to the feast at the table. If you're prone towards this temptation of self-protection, like I am, fasting serves as an intentional reminder. It's a way of us telling our flesh, actually, that it is going to wait. You're saying, No flesh, I'm going to wait for God. It's a practical declaration of dependence. But if you're prone towards the temptation of self-glorification, fasting serves to instruct your hearts to wait. It directs worship back to the one who's worthy of it. It functions as a practical way of pulling ourselves off of the throne and inviting Christ back onto his rightful seat. But fasting does one other thing. It tells the world about Jesus. A heart satisfied in Christ emanates out. In uh, John 4, um, the disciples come and they see Jesus not engaging in eating the same things as them. And they go, Rabbi, eat. They urge him, Rabbi, you need to eat. And Jesus says, I have food that you don't know about. They're like, what do you have, like snack pack in your backpack? No, no, he's eating spiritual food. Likewise, when the world around us and our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends and our spouse sees us not partaking in the same stones for bread that they are and still satisfied, they will come and say, Josh, eat. Mihai, eat. Dwayne, come and eat with me. They'll do this, and we'll be able to say, I have bread that you don't know about. Little cryptic. I have bread that you don't know about. Now, this isn't a prescription to make a big scene and let everybody know you're fasting. Jesus, elsewhere in the scripture, he combats this. This this can be a wrong expression of fasting. But people are going to notice that you're not going to stones for bread anymore, and they're going to notice that you're satisfied. And there is satisfaction. Physical fasting is spiritual feasting. The question for all of us, are we being satisfied? Many of us were not. Many of us were not really spiritually filled, but maybe then you need to fast. To quote, uh, forgive me, I'm going to back up for just a second. 
Another thing that will naturally start to come out of our hearts is another spiritual discipline, and that's a frugality. Frugality in, is really an outward expression of an inward satisfied heart. As we feast and as we're satisfied, we will engage with things differently. To quote Dallas Willard, he said, in frugality, we abstain from using money or goods at our disposal in ways that merely gratify our desires or our hunger for status, glamour, or luxury. So it might work differently for you. Like, so maybe you can afford the Lexus, but maybe you buy the Hyundai. Maybe you can afford the new outfit, but instead you make do with the one from last fall that's perfectly functional and doesn't have holes in it yet. Maybe you can afford to eat out, but instead you eat at home. Maybe you can do this, but instead you don't. Maybe you can afford to barbecue steaks tonight for dinner, but instead you don't. Maybe you have one beer instead of five. We no longer look to these things for satisfaction. We can handle them differently. So it's not just a complete abstaining. It's a difference in engagement. So... I want to I wrap up, but I want to ask us, are we consuming everything we have to its margins? Now, I notice in my own heart just this propensity towards revelry. I have a hard time going to bed because I want to get more out of the day. I want more. I want more. And I think it's a sign that I'm not really satisfied in Christ. And maybe I need to fast in order to partake of that more. How are we walking this out? How's your relationship with Christ? How satisfied are you? If you go, if you've ever been to like a marriage counselor or had a mentor or a therapist speak into your marriage, they'll often ask you a question like, what sort of rhythms do you have? What are you guys doing? What do you do together? They'll ask you because our rhythms define our experience. The direct how we're going to experience our lives. And they'll often create a practition. They'll, they'll give us maybe some, some sort of a, a practice to put on. Say, why don't you take a date night? Something we got counseled early on. So you're like, oh, okay, so we go and do this. And date night's really helpful. Getting time with your spouse, really helpful. They'll, they'll examine your rhythms and they'll probably give you something to work into your rhythms to change your experience. Can I just suggest that our walk with Christ is very similar? And if you're not having an experience with God and you're not satisfied, perhaps we need to examine our rhythms. Perhaps we need to insert some new ones. And could I commend to us, church, fasting? The next two weeks, I'm gonna, we're going to be talking about um, some disciplines that partner with fasting. And fasting serves as a platform for many of those. Could I commend this week for the sake of your satisfaction, fasting. If you've never done this before, it could look a number of different ways. Start with a meal, but choose your favorite meal. And work towards a day. Now, and I started with food. I'm assuming food. There's many fasts where we're like, oh, I'll fast Netflix. You can live without Netflix. You cannot actually physically live without food, but you can for a while, and we should. This is a practice of Christ, and if we want to be like Christ, we need to put on the practices of Christ. I want to commend this to us as a church for the sake of satisfaction because God is right there wanting to engage with us in conforming our nature to the character of Christ. And and I believe the Holy Spirit is going to use this, our intentional engagement and disciplines, um, to bring about change in many of those areas where for years maybe, if you're like me, you've been frustrated, going, why won't you change this? And I believe that this is just a holy moment for us as a church where the Holy Spirit's standing and saying, come and engage with me. The band's going to come forward and we're going to respond in a few different ways. Pardon me, this is getting a little tangled. If you want to... uh, um, Maybe confess some areas in your heart. The Holy Spirit's brought some stuff up. I would encourage you to come over, talk to the prayer couple. Confession is another discipline 
If we want to kill sin in our lives, we need to quit giving it a dark place to grow. Confession is a discipline, and I would encourage you to use it and get prayer this morning. As well, we're going to come forward and, uh, and respond in communion. There's wine and juice according to your conscience, but you take the bread, if you're a believer in Christ, you dip it in either the wine or the juice, and remember that Christ has died on your behalf. You are righteous before God. And so you combat this lie of Satan that tells you you need to do something to be made righteous. You come up here, the one thing you do, remind yourself that Jesus purchased salvation for you. Please do not hear me saying that this is going to make you more pleasing in God's sight, this discipline of fasting. This is merely an invitation of God to, to join with him in what he's already doing in your hearts. You are objectively righteous. Come and celebrate that, and then we'll sing together with the band um, the praises that are due to Jesus. Praise him for what he's accomplished and reflect and allow your heart to just well up in joy because Christ has redeemed you. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you. Thank you for the picture of a satisfied heart that you've given us. Thank you for this beautiful record in Matthew 4 of you resisting temptation and thank you that you don't abandon us to our temptations alone but you're right there to walk with us. I pray corporately for this church that we would um, experience a victory in our lives over some of these sins and temptations and desires that have been haunting us. I pray that as we walk into these practices, understanding them to be just invitations from you to participate, not earn, that we would meet you in new ways. I pray that we would be a people satisfied and the world would see that and we'd be able to say, I have bread that you don't know about. I pray this week, congregationally, we would taste that bread. Your word in, in Luke, it says, a disciple's not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. We want to be like you, Jesus. I want my heart to be like yours. We want our desires to be like yours. So we pray, Holy Spirit, come and meet with us. Jesus, be glorified out of our worship, and we pray it in your name. Amen.